All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the very first session of our study of a book by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, LCMS Pastor. Has American Christianity Failed? If you uh, don't have a copy of this, you'll want to pick one up for this study. And this study is very important because it reminds us of why we are Lutheran. And um, for those, those who might be interested in Lutheranism, it provides a great, uh, a great introduction and gives you the lay of the land of American Christianity and then compares and contrasts American Christianity with what we find in biblical and historic Christianity. So this should be a great study. Um, our method will be uh, not to read word for word, line by line, but to skip around a little bit, sometimes more, sometimes less, but that'll, that'll be our method. Um, and what that means is please feel free to raise your hand, always, with uh, questions, comments, additions, clarifications. But um, also then, if we skip over a section that's of interest to you or a statement that's of interest to you, um, or question, then, uh, then don't hesitate to bring our attention to that and we'll address it. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, well let's simply begin at the beginning. Pastor Wolfmuller brings up an analogy that we have all gone a little bit nose blind. Boy, does this uh, resonate with me personally all the more after having had COVID and basically losing my sense of smell. I'm perpetually self-conscious now <laughs> because whereas I used to be able to de detect certain odors coming from, you know, my children, <laughs> my person, my office, who knows what, my car. Uh, now I don't have that, and so I'm, I'm self-conscious. But we all become nose blind to the way our, our houses smell, our, our vehicles smell, our environment smells. Uh, and he uses this by way of analogy that we have all uh, have a spiritual equivalent of this in that we don't really realize what undergirds our American Christianity and our religious experience, our, our sort of frame of reference. Sometimes we'll use other expressions to describe this, like it's in the air or like we're fish in a tank, it's just in the water we're swimming in. We kind of imbibe these uh, religious precepts without even recognizing that we have. So one of, the, one of the great and fun things that we get to do is do a little deconstruction and find out what those underpinnings are and, uh, and, and trace those back and see how far, or as the case may be, how not that far back <laughs> some of them go. So, Pastor Wolfmuller introduces us to uh, the substance as we move into pages 8 and 9. And I'll just point out um, maybe the first paragraph on page 8. There are distinct ways of worshiping, praying, and talking about God. We are surrounded with American Christianity's unique theology and without even noticing it, we begin to absorb this theology. We are theologically nose-blind. American Christianity teaches the centrality of the individual, my will, my experiences, my decision, my heart, my work and dedication. What I think is interesting is even if you just pull those out of a spiritual context, those are fundamental identifiers of who we are as American people. And in fact, things we take great pride in, and rightfully so, perhaps, in the civil sphere, in the left-hand kingdom. But do they translate well over to the right-hand sphere, to the ecclesiastical or churchly kingdom? Well, that critique is the substance of these early chapters. 
So I left off mid-sentence. Let me pick back up mid-sentence. The centrality of the individual, my will, my experiences, my decision, my heart, my work and dedication to the detriment of Christ and his saving and comforting work. American Christianity most often preaches the Christian instead of the Christ. And our senses are so dulled that we don't even notice he's missing. Now, many of you have recognized this uh, by, by way of personal experience or you've visited um, you know, American Christian churches, whatever denomination they may be. Um, I know I've had my, my share of personal experiences with this in visiting a variety of non-denominational, especially what we would call capital E evangelical, um, but more broadly just American Christian churches. Um, what is very frequently the center of the message is the Christian, how you're doing or what you need to do or what we're doing collectively as, as Christians. Um, and, then, and then Jesus is usually there, but as an asterisk. Very, very frequently he shows up in the last few lines of the sermon. <laughs> Uh, but not really, not really until that point. And, and then even, even then we can make a distinction, can't we? Because Jesus may be present, but is it, as Paul would say, Christ and him crucified? Because very frequently I've noticed that Jesus is present in, in the, by way of asterisk, by way of maybe the beginning and or the end, maybe a line or two in the center. But then, is the Christ being proclaimed Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins, or is, it a, or is it Christ, you know, smiling upon us, being nice and kind, being an example, that kind of thing? That free, more frequently, in my experience, is what emerges. So maybe your, your experience varies from that. That's fine. Um, but I think, I think in terms of a, a general description, this is pretty fair. Any questions, any comments, any thoughts you have based on your experience um, with American Christianity. Everyone's shy since we just began. Yeah, please, Bob. Oh, hold on one second. I'm sorry. We're working on getting microphones in the ceiling. Then everyone will hear your every whisper. You <laughs> You have to be careful now, Alice. Yeah. <laughs> what I've always, what's always occurred to me is it's very broad, but maybe very shallow at the same time. Mm. You know, just really shallow, but... Uh, yeah, are you thinking... Inter- I think that way, or at least where my mind goes, is um, some of the messages I've heard or the sermons I've heard in uh, American Christianity, very broadly speaking, uh, have been quite lengthy, um, 45 right. minutes, an hour sometimes, and I feel like we covered a lot of ground but I don't exactly know why. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's really shallow. Yeah. yeah if we, I know we've, we've covered a lot of content. We went here, 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 and here, and here. Yeah. But I don't understand what that has to do with Christian doctrine as such, with Christ as such. Yeah. 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 Um, I think they would say that isn't true. Mm. And that goes to the introduction about the smell you know, mm-hmm. where they don't notice it. They're unaware of it. Uh, yeah. And so the only way they could become aware of it is to go to another church, which then leads them to a liturgical church, which they're very unfamiliar with because... Right. And you get different reactions to that. Very frequently, it's, it's strange, um, very frequently when folks who are thoroughly engaged and happy with, content with American Christianity visit faith. In my, in my pastoral conversations with them over the years, they don't quite know what to make of us because on the one hand, our theology and our connection with um, church history makes us academic in a way that they're not really comfortable with. But paradoxically to them, our sermons, since they're always about Christ and Him crucified, always strike them as being very rudimentary. So they can't quite figure out if we're for advanced Christians or baby Christians, right? Yeah, because there's this this sense in which, um, well, you're supposed to develop past the rudimentary gospel of Christ 
crucified for the forgiveness of sins. Well, I'm saying that that's the perception, yeah. As people come and visit us, it's like, why are you doing the gospel every single Sunday? Haven't we moved past that, right? Isn't there more, isn't there more to Christianity <laughs> than that? Yeah, thank you, thank you for that observation, Alice. Yes, please. Oh, sorry, one second. Good morning. Hi. Um, I did want to just share that um, I have a friend who's listening online from Napomo. Hi, Becky. Um, she and I attended church here about five, maybe six years ago. And at that time, you know, I'm a lifetime Lutheran. Mm -hmm. She was a new Christian. And this is so appropriate to study right now because we just were walking in darkness. We, you know, we're not ready for this Bible-based liturgical church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was so over our heads. We didn't get that feeling that we were looking for. We didn't leave feeling, you know happy and what's in it for us and ah, so yes. we went elsewhere and she stayed Lutheran I went to another Lutheran church and uh -huh. so we're back because now we've understood what it's not about us and our life here it's about our eternity uh -huh. so thank you for very interesting having the teaching and well thank the, you yeah thank you for sharing that faith-based church yeah thank you for sharing that perspective and we'll be really eager to hear your perspective throughout this uh, as we look at this you know and and in terms of I, I mean we're free to uh, to agree with this text or disagree with this text or you know a little bit of both so if your experience is different please you know voice that there's a, a couple points that I'll, I'll point out and just you know my experience or my take on it may be slightly different um, so that'll be the fun of going through this text together all right I'm going to skip down on page eight just to there's this kind of heading did anybody else find the uh, the formatting of this text a little distracting. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, we'll have to write CPH and ask them why they chose to do it this way. Under the banner thingy that says combating theological nose blindness, he does point out a few of American Christianity's strengths. And I think that this is, I like, I like doing this because this is fair. Um, he says it is earnest. It often takes the Bible seriously. It waits eagerly for the Lord Jesus to return. It strives to make the world a better place. And I think that's where his, uh, his compliments end. But I think, I think it's good for us to recognize that um, we're not just bashing here. And our, and our criticism of American Christianity isn't a loveless kind of criticism. We, we appreciate so much of, a, of American Christianity and, and what's, you know, what's going on here. We want to we want to build on that common ground even while being critical of those areas where we need to be critical. If we drop down to the very bottom of page 8, we get a little bit of autobiographical statement. Um, of course, Pastor Wolfmuller, before he became LCMS, before he became a pastor in the LCMS, which stands for Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, by the way, and one of the more confessional Lutheran church bodies here in America. Um, but before his time um, converting over here, he was part of evangelicalism, broadly speaking. And uh, so he sees his background as being um, thoroughly uh, steeped in American Christianity. So he's referring a, a little bit autobiographically here to, to those years. He says, these years were spent in a theological wilderness. The life and joy of the gospel dried up and was replaced with my efforts and experiences. The same teaching came from every direction. Books, radio, journals, music, friends, small groups, all reinforcing the assumption that the Bible was chiefly about me. American Christianity is an echo chamber. The clamor destroys the ability to hear something else. This is especially dangerous when that something else is the gospel. All right, well, what is American Christianity, though? We have to define it. And that's what Pastor Wolfmuller does for us over on page 9. So he says, the f this is right in the middle. It's kind of the middle of a paragraph, but right before that table. The four characteristics of American Christianity are revivalism, pietism, mysticism, and enthusiasm. Okay, one thing to note right off the bat is that these four terms, revivalism, pietism, mysticism, and enthusiasm, 
have, um, well, they're terms for very large movements within the church, the global church. Right? So what it really is wise to do and what it will behoove us to do is to pay attention narrowly to how Pastor Wolfmuller is, de is defining them and to not necessarily mistake his definition, his usage, as the universal definition, universal usage. Um, let me give you one example. He mentions pietism. Pietism has been described in any number of ways because how you're thinking about it, how you're framing it, changes your definition. You could define pietism as specifically a move away from the external sacraments into the inner confines of the heart. You can define pietism as a quest for having true faith. You know, do you really, truly, very much so truly have true faith, truly? You know, like this, this constant pursuit of is it genuine, is it genuine? Um, there's pietism that very much works in the form of uh, my works prove that I have faith, which prove that I'm saved. And then there's pietism that is more kind of defined in terms of its expression, its, its experience. What happens on Sunday mornings doesn't, isn't really what matters. What happens in our small groups, at, in our dining rooms, in our living rooms, that's what really matters. That's the heart and essence of Christianity. And thus it tends not to be sacramental. It tends to be devotional, um, feelings-oriented, etc. Okay, but what does this exercise show? There are umpteen different ways of defining pietism depending upon how one's looking at it. So what we want to do with each of these, um, these terms that Pastor Wolfmuller brings up is we want to see how he's defining it. First, make a distinction and recognize he's defining it in this way, not using it in the more broad sense. And so then we want to do our, we want to do our critique, our analysis of what he has to write um, on the basis of his own definitions. Okay, so let's look into those. That's the chart on page nine, foundational to his text here. Uh, revivalism is the first he brings up, and he says, revivalism teaches that the Christian life begins with a personal decision to accept Christ. Now he's gonna flesh all of these out but that the Christian life begins with a personal decision to accept Christ. Um, right off the bat, how does this strike Lutheran ears as being much too narrow? Very, very generally speaking, what of those who can't make a decision for Christ? What of children? What of those who have some sort of mental or cognitive disability? What of those who are comatose? What of those who are in various stages of dementia or Alzheimer? are, are Alzheimer's, are they excluded then um, from beginning this, the, this relationship with Christ based on a personal decision? Right? So there's, there's sort of our first critique is that this is way too narrow. And obviously our critique's gonna be a little more thorough than that based on uh, what the assumption is if we have a free will to accept Christ. Now suddenly we're saying a lot about human nature after the fall and um, if, if there's some part in us that remains free, did Christ die for that part of us? Did he need to die for that part of us? If that part of us is righteous and free? We'll get into this, uh, this discussion later, but for now, revivalism. Um, the Christian life begins with a personal decision to accept Christ with an act of the human will. All right, next, pietism. We just spent some time talking about broader definitions of pietism or descriptions of pietism. Here, uh, the author has selected a more narrow definition. Pietism teaches that the Christian life is chiefly marked by a growth in good works. Okay, here I think one of the key words to point out is chiefly. We're going to see in Pastor Wolfmuller's treatment of pietism that it's largely a matter of emphasis. 
when the emphasis is so thoroughly on growth in good works that it blots out or eclipses Christ, then we have what he defines as pietism. And he'll, be, he'll, he'll say in multiple places that, hey, well, good works are good. That's not the problem. And the problem is when good works and growth and good works come to eclipse Christ and his works toward us. Okay, third, mysticism. Mysticism teaches that we can have direct, unmediated access to God. So that's how he's defining and using mysticism, direct, unmediated access to God. Okay, that, that tends to be um, God, and this is, where, this is where you can see the last one that we're going to talk about, enthusiasm. Enthusiasm really overlaps with mysticism, pietism, and revivalism. But mysticism here, this idea of unmediated access to God, that God will speak directly to my heart. That's kind of mysticism as Pastor Wolfmuller is defining it. Of course, there's much more broad definition that can be used here, um, but that's how he's going to use the term mysticism. Last but not least, enthusiasm. And this teaches that the spiritual life happens inside of us. Okay, so you can see how revivalism has to do with my decision or the act of my will. Pietism has to do with my growth in good works. Mysticism has to do with my direct experience of God. And now you can see how enthusiasm overlaps with all of these. The spiritual life is happening inside of me. Now that might not strike us as, uh, as being necessarily wrong or necessarily problematic because again we've kind of become nose blind to these but what we'll do is we'll walk through each one of these steps and we'll see why it is a problem we'll see what some of the theological opinions are that undergird these four points all right well that is wolf Mueller's definition of american christianity or its four chief characteristics any thoughts questions or comments you have on on that table or what we've touched on Uh, as I read this, um, it occurred to me that I didn't see one of my favorite topics, and that's dispensationalism. Mm. Maybe we'll get to mm. it later, but uh, it's missing right now. And, and I think that should be at the forefront of all everything. <laughs> I mean, it's... it's um, and dis- Every- dispensationalism, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to hazard a guess that that means kind of this infatuation with the end times, that's how you're meaning it, the yes. various theories involved with the end times and trying to find our place in that timeline. Right, but starting with salvation was one method during uh, the Old Testament oh, period. Oh, yes. We're saved under another method now. And if you get into hyper-dispensationalism, I think there's 13 dispensations. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. But yeah, you're right. It's end times. And so you are speaking more narrowly about dispensational proper, and, and I was kind of seeing that as a subset. I mean, it is an issue. Yeah. But it's a subset of sort of this end times mania that, in many respects, is misguided. Right. Because it, you know, from a Lutheran view, now in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. The end, the end times find their fulfillment by setting our eyes on Christ. Right. Whereas there seems to be a different place you set your eyes um, as, a, as an American Christian. Not so much on Christ and Him crucified, right? The final right. revelation of God. But rather, um, one hand on the newspaper and the other <laughs> hand on the book of Revelation, yeah. trying to figure out where you are. Yeah. Right? And they all, all of the evangelicals have this to some degree or another. So mm. Mm. maybe we'll hit it later on. Maybe so. Let's keep an eye out for that. Okay. That would be an interesting thing to, uh, to consider and add. Yes, please. The orientation for each of these, from my viewpoint, is that it's narcissistic, very me-oriented. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, well, unfortunately, that's a part of our culture, isn't it? 
And marketing taps right into that. If you if you start paying attention to that, how we're marketed, it's you know the the marketing is so crass now. It's they'll just come right out and say it's all about you. I mean, what they don't tell you is the subtext about you giving us your money, but it is all about you. And and even something so simple as the iPhone, iPhone, right? You know, yeah. I mean, we just take it for granted. Um, but but our entire society teaches us that the individual is the center of the universe. Thank you for that. Yes, please. Yeah, and these four characteristics, um, I believe that the leaders or the, the, the pastors had thought, thought them very well because it's so attractive mm -hmm. to, to everybody. Mm -hmm. It's like when you go to the first sermon or first service and they are like, Wow, I felt God spoke to me directly. So instead of uh, law and gospel, they have these four characteristics into their sermon mm -hmm. that is mm -hmm. very attac attractive to the public. Yes, right. Thank you for that. Um, one of the things we'll see as we progress is we'll, we'll get to see where these things come from historically. Why, are, why is it revivalism, pietism, mysticism, and enthusiasm? And there's a, there's a story there. It's because it's part of a narrative. Very broadly speaking, what you'll see all four of these points in reaction to is the Enlightenment okay, and rationalism that is seen to take over the church. So kind of a cold, dead orthodoxy a triumph of reason over feeling, of institution over individual. And so what we're going to largely see then is these are reactions and overreactions against that. And so you can see then how it's um, you know, not an institution but the individual, not cold hard orthodoxy but mysticism, what God tells you in your heart. Um, emotion rather than logic, etc. So you can, anyway, you can get a flavor for um, the big sweep of history and enlightenment, rationalism, and then these things as a reaction against that. Okay, so let's uh, let's go over to page ten and see how he. Uh, wraps up the preface here with some good, solid theology. Very top of page 10, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. American Christianity fails because its yoke is wearisome. Its burden is heavy. Having taken its eyes off of Jesus as the author and perfecter of faith, American Christianity replaces the work of the Holy Spirit with the choice of the sinner. Okay? That's our first uh, real substantive critique of revivalism that we find it native to the text. So American Christianity replaces the work of the Holy Spirit with the choice of the sinner. It replaces the comfort of the gospel with the doubt of our resolve. As we'll see, that is a uh, substantive critique of what he calls pietism. It replaces the certainty of God's promise with the shakiness of our feelings, there's a substantive critique of mysticism. And last but not least, it puts burdens and doubts where the Lord would give us freedom and faith. And that is ultimately going to be a critique of enthusiasm. Wolf Mueller continues, the alternative that Jesus has for us is light and easy. It is the yoke of the forgiveness of sins. It is the burden of his mercy and kindness. It is the comfort of his smile and the joy of his promises. It is his voice full of grace and truth calling us through the scriptures. When we listen for that voice in the scriptures, we hear it and we rejoice. 
This book intends to rouse us from our theological nose blindness to awaken our theological awareness. We sound the alarm against the false teaching and dangerous practices of American Christianity. We recognize the noxious stench of our theological assumptions and we offer a beautiful alternative. The smelling salt of God's law snaps us out of our self-satisfied complacency and pride. The sweet savor of the gospel hands us over to the comfort, joy, peace, confidence, and sure hope of Christ. This is the quote-unquote aroma of Christ who is our life and salvation. And that, that phrase, the aroma of Christ, of course, being a quotation from 2 Corinthians 2.15. All right, there's the preface, there's the, the foundation uh, being laid. Any, any thoughts, any questions, anything uh, you disagree with right out of the gate here? Um, this, when I was reading the introduction, he mentioned small groups. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that comforts me in this church is when we study together under a pastoral leadership, that we don't go off far afield. Mm. And what I notice in churches that have small groups and desperate leaders, and they all put their own interpretation on it, and my sister has said to me, but he's really smart. Mm. And I said, but is it the church's teaching? And so I think that me involves ignoring past leaders and church fathers and coming up with your own so it goes back to me again. Mm. You know, it always goes back to me. Yes, we could go off on, a, an, a, on an entire tangent in, yeah. re, in regard to our robust doctrine of the office of the holy ministry. But just to speak to that briefly, it's a, it's a public office, and it's an objective office, and I'm bound to the scriptures, and I'm bound to the teachings of the Lutheran confessions, and so my scope is, is narrow. It's public. It's formal. You're not getting the personal, you know, wit and wisdom and um, the personal guidance of me, nor are you getting, by extension, the, the personal wit, wisdom, and guidance of a charismatic layman within a small circle telling you this is, you know, God's will for us, et cetera, et cetera. Well, so. it's safe, too. I mean, it's like bumpers. It's like we can start to go off, but we're held in a Christian path. Yeah, that, that is, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That structure, that formality yeah. binds the pastor within a public office, so he has bumpers, as you put it, and then it binds the congregation and, and binds us together in keeping the essentials essential. Yeah. I really uh, I feel for those pastors and for those congregations that don't have that because congregations don't have protections against a charismatic pastor who wants to take them whatever way he wants to take them. Um, the flip side is if you're a pastor in that situation, um, what do you have to guide you? What do you have to guide your church besides sort of your own internal compass or their internal compass? You end up becoming a people pleaser because you end up telling people what they want to hear. Um, in order to perpetuate the institution. Yeah. But anyway, we digress, but that is a way in which yeah, that we see the pastoral office and that relationship suffer in American Christianity. Yeah. Okay, as we go into chapter one now, we're going to zoom in on each one of these uh, piece by piece. So we will, we will spend a couple pages at least on revivalism, then pietism, then mysticism, then enthusiasm. We'll get a little bit of background and I'll offer a little more to flesh that out. And then we'll kind of uh, launch off on some various other distinctions that he makes that um, uh, certainly communicate a kind of difference between American Christianity and historic Christianity. Let's, uh, let's take a look on page one, revivalism. It starts with me, revivalism is the subheading. A type, uh, excuse me, a typical service in a typical American Christian church is programmed to build to a climax. Now, this is one of the ways in which the word liturgical actually loses its meaning because every church has a liturgy. Non-liturgical churches 
have a liturgy that is an order of service that communicates, that's predictable each Sunday, that, predict, uh, that indicates and, and shows forth their theology. And um, so Ameri the liturgy of American Christianity is a, a service that builds to a climax. Why is that and where did that come from? Well, let's explore. Wolfmuller continues, there are a few carefully selected songs, a performance or two, announcements, a sermon or Bible teaching, all with the purpose of driving the participant to the quote-unquote time of decision or the altar call, a final call to action, something that you're going to decide or do or pray. Sometimes it's one or the other, sometimes it's all of the above, but I, I found this to be anecdotally true in my experience. For those of us who have already made the decision for Jesus, the, the final action is to engage in this or that ministry of the church, or to get really plugged in in a small group or something like that. Um, while for those who haven't made a decision or are feeling shaky about the decision they once made, then for them it's, it's time to uh, make that decision or reaffirm that decision. But it is, it is um, like every single service, driving to this. So it, if we were to just use the phrase altar call to describe all of that, what would be, what would be the, the divine service? What would be the altar call of the divine service? The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. In a sense, it all drives to and climaxes the Lord, to, at the point of the Lord's Supper which the Lord's Supper is Jesus and him crucified, coming to us, giving us himself, his body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Gift given, gift received. So you see the difference. If the heart of American Christianity is to drive you to a decision, to an action, the heart of Lutheran historic Christianity is to drive you to Jesus to receive him and his gifts. So the two are inverted, aren't they? All right, so there, there might be uh, the first place in which we can analyze revivalism by way of just simply what happens on a given Sunday morning. Uh, Wolf Mueller continues, it's right in the middle of that paragraph, kind of oddly broken up there by the formatting. He continues, in the back of every Gideon Bible, do they still have those? I haven't been in a hotel in a while. <laughs> do they still have Gideon Bibles tucked in the, no? Uh, no, just the Book of Mormon. Oh, no, it's worse. In the back of every Gideon Bible is a page that will walk you through the quote-unquote Romans road, explaining your sin, telling of the death of Jesus, and then inviting you to pray a prayer, submitting your life to him. At the end of almost every Christian concert or Christian event, there is this call to commit yourself to Christ. And he goes on to describe the sinner's prayer. Okay? Very interesting, and this is kind of part of how we've become nose-blind and, and not very critical. Uh, the sinner's prayer is everywhere in American Christianity. But where is the sinner's prayer in the Bible? I mean, where does, at, at the end of the Pentecost sermon, the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles at Pentecost, and they're preaching to the thousands gathered around, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit. And they're cut to the heart and they say, what must we do to be saved? And he says, pray this prayer after me. <laughs> no. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children. So it's a very different thing than, hey, say this prayer after me. In fact, the sinner's prayer never shows up in the scriptures. Okay, well, if it doesn't show up in the scriptures, where does it show up? Not until the 18th century. The early 18th century, at the time of the Great Awakening, is where the, and, um, and it's really kind of a, a misnomer to say the sinner's prayer, because it really doesn't have one form, does it? And if you listen to Rick Warren's sinner's prayer, it's slightly different than Rock Harbor's sinner's prayer. It's, it's idiosyncratic based on the, the church, the pastor, or the day. But this idea is universal, and this idea doesn't enter the church for 1,700 years, and then suddenly shows up and becomes normative. All right, well, that indicates to us then that there might, we, we might take issue with that, or we might be critical of that. If this has become the center, how is it that it wasn't the center for those 1,700 years prior? 
All right, we have, um, we have the sinner's prayer brought up, and then we have on page 12, the four spiritual laws brought up. Of course, um, Pastor Wolfmuller, before he was a Lutheran, was very active in Campus Crusade. And again, I, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to demonize people or be unfair. Campus Crusade has uh, does great does great work, and they reach out with the gospel, and um, they're out there trying to convert people to Christ. So we want to give credit where credit's due, no doubt about it. Um, and yet we want to be we want to be critical if at least some of what they're put for, putting forward um, has less to do with biblical Christianity and more to do with American Christianity. So we look at the four spiritual laws, and he lists those out. These come from 1965, uh, and they're written by um, Bill Bright, is the author's name. So law one, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Now, if you're just reading very charitably, what could be wrong with that? Um, what we're going to find out is that the rub is kind of in that word, offers. Offers. We don't need to be overly critical of that when people say God offers you forgiveness, life, and salvation. It's fine. You don't need to immediately you know, pelt that person with tomatoes. Um, but at the end of the four laws and at the end of this theology, you're going to see that it's like, it's like God's gone halfway and you've got to meet him halfway in order for this to work. And then, then offer takes on a different context, doesn't it? It's kind of like when the car salesman offers you the new car, you know that your part is putting in the money. And so there's this meeting between the two. And that, that's where the four spiritual laws in this theology become problematic. So God loves you, law one, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan of your life. Only in hindsight can we be a little critical of that word offers. Law two, man is sinful and separated from God. Therefore, he cannot know and experience God's love and plan for his life. Again, um, and maybe even more so, law two, superficially, it's difficult to detect anything wrong, although the rub is going to be in how you define man is sinful. Law three, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him, you can know and experience God's love and plan for your life. Well, here our critique might be that more needs to be said. Enough isn't said about Christ crucified and the forgiveness of sins. Um, But, insofar as it goes. And then law four, we must individually receive Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. Then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our lives. And there is a bit, of, a bit of a condition wrapped in there. Again, superficially reading, I think there's a right way and an orthodox way to understand that, but there is a bit of if-then written into the grammar. Now, look at the top of uh, page 13, and we will get Wolf Mueller's critique of this statement that, again, originates in the pen of Bill Bright. For Bright, salvation is only a potential. Something remains to be done. The Christian in America is led to, quote, receive Jesus Christ by faith as an act of the will. It is chiefly a relationship that will begin when the sinner receives Jesus through an individual personal effort. That is, the will has to do something, so there's the individual personal effort. Faith, we are taught, is an act of the will. All right, well, we've got a few problems with that right off the bat. Of course, there's the critique of what of those who can't enact their will? Are they outside of salvation? Here we talk about infants, children, handicapped, elderly, etc. That's a valid critique. Another valid critique is that if you simply define faith as an act of the will, that is an action on the part of man. So if we pose the question this way, why are you in heaven and why is Jones in hell? 
The answer is because you made a decision for Christ and because Jones rejected Christ. So you've got, you've got all of a sudden, what is, what is the essence of getting into heaven? Whether or not you make this act of the will. So then salvation is entirely based on works, isn't it? One work, the work of your will, the act of your will. So by very subtle trickery and sleight of hand, the devil can rob us of the entire gospel on this point. Defining faith as an act of the will, as a work. All right. Um, And of course, our other critique of this is going to be, if the will of a human being, which is the heart and center of a human being, I mean, what more do you have to you than your will? What you decide and choose to do on a daily basis has all kinds of consequences, good and bad. It's really the essence of who you are, your will. If your will is good and free, free enough to make a decision for Jesus, untainted by sin such that you can turn to God as an act of your will, in what sense does that act of, uh, in what sense does your will have to be died for? In what sense does atonement have to be made for your will? In what sense is your will sinful? It isn't sinful. It's free. And if it's free and not sinful, then Christ didn't need to die for it. And and again, if we think of the will as the heart and center of who I am, then Christ doesn't need to die for the heart and center of who I am. So formally, we can view this from two different angles. From the angle of original sin, we see that the whole human being is tainted by sin, including his will, so that we will not choose God or turn to him. Very famously, Christ says to his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. Okay. So from the angle of original sin, and the Bible's teaching on original sin, there is none who does right, no, not one. None seeks after God, etc. We can negate this free will decision theology. The other side of that coin, really just a mirror image of it, is our teaching by grace alone. The Bible's teaching that we are saved by grace alone apart from works. If we define faith and saving faith so that it is a work, it's contrary to being saved by grace alone, you see. So now again, it's that question of why is Jones in heaven and, or yeah, you're in heaven and Jones is in hell. Why, you know, and if you have to say, well, it, come, it boils down to this decision of the will then it doesn't boil down to grace. It boils down to human activity. All right, so we can analyze this this business about um, decision theology from these different lenses and come to conclude it's just not, it's just not biblical. What does this do to the gospel? Well, as Wolfmuller says, for Bright, salvation is only a potential. And so that then colors that whole language of the word offer, doesn't it? It's your sins are forgiven if fill in the blank. And what is the fill in the blank? If you make a decision for Christ. So that's very different than the objective proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins that Christ gives his church to proclaim to all the ends of the earth. Okay? because it adds a conditional to the gospel. Your sins are forgiven if, and that adds a conditional to the gospel, thus destroying the free grace of the gospel. Okay, well, that's a little bit of a deep dive. Um, But again, we're seeing here, we're being critical here of what is at the heart of revivalism, this idea that everything, all of Christianity, the heart of Christianity and everything that extends from it, boils down to your decision, putting everything and all the emphasis on you rather than on who? Christ. The antithesis of this would be Christ that seeks out the lost sheep. Does the lost sheep will to be found? No. He's the one that wandered away. (laughs) He, you know, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. And the good shepherd tracks us down, gathers us up in his arms, and brings us safely home. Okay, that's the, that might be the anti-type, if you will, to this theology. All right, it also, it also then locks people into this question. 
when did you receive Christ? And to this conce these concepts, uh, which are very American, of being born again and having a testimony, um, which is basically referring to the moment you made a decision and thus were saved. So then this becomes foundational. Um, so that, the, you know, the common question is like, when were you saved? And of course, by way of offering a contrast, we Lutherans might say, well, before the foundation of the world, when God elected me in Christ Jesus, that's when I was saved. Or we might say 2,000 years ago when Christ, the Lamb of God, was slain for the sins of the whole world. Or we might say when I was baptized and Christ chose me as his own and made me into a son of God, a new creation, giving me new birth in the water and the spirit of holy baptism, as Jesus teaches Nicodemus in John 3. So those would be the loci for for Lutherans, and really extending back, if you, if you look into the history of the church, these would be the answers given for uh, going on 2,100 years, not when I made a decision for Jesus. Again, this comes about, this whole decision for Jesus thing, and this identifying my conversion as my decision, comes about in the 18th century with the Great Awakening, which we'll talk about more in a minute. Okay, is some of this resonating with you, at least in, in your experience or in conversations you've had with other Christians? This, um, when did you make a decision for Jesus? All right, um, so let's go over to page 14. Esther. Oh, yes, please, please. Sorry, um, when you mentioned why am I in heaven and yeah. Jones is not. Yeah, sure. And that always, I have a hard time with it. I mean, I know why people are in heaven it's all God mm -hmm. but the why not that's the yeah sure that's a great question so the way the Bible presents the gospel is it's the finished work in Christ so we go out into all the world proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins not forgiveness of sins if you make a decision for Jesus which is evangelicalism Americanism not forgiveness of sins if your elect, which is Calvinism, but just the forgiveness of sins full stop. It's, it is finished. It's a done, accomplished fact. The Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world. So we go out proclaiming this good news. Now, if someone rejects that good news, it doesn't invalidate the good news, does it? But they exclude themselves from it. Yeah. And so, so then what reason is a person in hell? Not because they have sins that Jesus didn't atone for, not because God doesn't want them to be saved. The scriptures tell us explicitly that God desires that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So why then, what is the reason then that they would be outside? Only if they reject that and choose to be outside themselves. So there is human activity in rejecting Christ, but one can't really accept Christ any more than one can accept that it's sunny outside. Hey, it's sunny outside. Not for me, not until I accept that it's sunny outside. Do you see how ridiculous that is? Not until I choose to acknowledge that it's sunny. No, it already is sunny. I mean, this has its direct parallel in the gospel and this decision theology. Um, your sins are forgiven only if you choose to believe they are. The sun is shining only if you choose to believe it is. That puts everything on the person. It's just not, it gives nothing to Christ, nothing to objective reality and what's true. So again, the, and Jesus tells many parables to this effect, but um, one of those, one of those that touches on this point is the, is the wedding invitation. Where, where he sends it out, he, and the message is, the message is, my son is getting married, there's going to be a feast, come. It's not, it's not my son is getting married if you'll attend. My son is going to have a feast if you come. Um, but it's all of these things have already happened and are happening and we want you there. And then the only reason they're not there is because why? They don't want to be. Some have business, some have work, some make up excuses and they don't. And so, of course, in Jesus' par parable, this parallels the Jewish people who reject him. So then he sends out the, the gospel message to who? Everyone in the highways and the byways and, and that's representative of the Gentiles in the whole world. And and so that gospel message comes out. Again, nothing, none of it's conditional. Just come to the feast. The only reason you're not at the feast is because you don't want to be. 
Yeah, so that's, I mean, the only reason then you're not at the heavenly feast is because you don't want to be. So that's how we very biblically teach, like, look, if you're in hell, it's your fault. If you're in heaven, that's God. <laughs> it perfectly follows Jesus' own preaching and teaching. Yeah. Great question. Thank you for that. We have just a few minutes left. Maybe we, can, maybe we can wrap up revivalism and then be ready to do a deep dive into pietism next week. On page 14, we get a little bit of the history of revivalism. The very top of revival, uh, that page in the brackets. Revivalism, Wolf Mueller writes, teaches that the Christian life begins with a personal decision to accept Christ. Revivalism assumes the individual human will has some degree of spiritual freedom and it also assumes that that will can be assisted on its way to making a decision. Thus, the revivalist preachers aim to excite, move, and appeal to the will. I, this is why you have motorcycles in church and um, fog machines and you know the circus, uh, because it is all aimed to excite, move, and appeal to the will. Revivalism, Wolfmuller continues, is built on the foundation of our decision and act of the will, a moment of acceptance or decision. The father of American revivalism is Charles Finney, 1792 to 1875. Finney shaped the Second Great Awakening. So the First Great Awakening, I've got to refer to my notes here, 1720s to 1740s. This is uh, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitefield, um, largely Calvinistic, Puritanistic in flavor and um, over and against rationalism and institutionalism. The Second Great Awakening comes some 50 years later and really the, the only main, main person is uh, Charles Finney. The Second Great Awakening is the 1790s to the 1830s and this, in contrast to the Calvinism and Puritanism that went before, is uh, Baptistic and Methodistic. Of course, Charles Finney's a Methodist. And this is an Arminian decision-based uh, theology, an Arminian decision-based, quote-unquote, awakening. Thus, um, thus, really at the heart of revivalism. Okay, so here you have the new measures, the anxious bench, all of these historical things that have their contemporary counterpoints. What's the contemporary counterpoint of the anxious bench? It's that awkward moment when at the end of the service, the pastor says, if anyone wants to give their heart to Jesus, uh, I, I want you to just all close your, close your eyes and bow your heads and just put your hand up in the air. And you're sitting there for so long in such awkward silence, <laughs> no doubt about it, somebody finally raises their hand more just to put an end to the awkwardness than anything else. All right, well, that's the anxious bench. That's this idea, these techniques. Okay, Methodism, method. There's a method of bringing people to Jesus. There's a method of pushing the will to making a decision for Jesus. And so we're going to define, we're going to try to figure out what that method is. It's an oversimplification, but um, is effectively exactly what's happening. All right, so Finney's influence is everywhere in American Christianity, as Wolf Mueller notes here. Um, and maybe the last, uh, the last paragraph here is uh, good enough for us to leave off. The first characteristic of American Christianity is revivalism. The decision for Christ is both the end and the beginning of everything. Jesus made salvation possible, but really it all starts with me. And that's where that language of offer starts to really become suspect, you see. Revivalism fails to see the big picture of the scriptures. Our gracious God and Savior comes after us, grabs us up, gives us the gift of repentance and faith, and calls us to be his own dear friends. Our salvation is his work from the very beginning, and we are the beneficiaries of his mercy. All right, well, there's going to be more by way of positive theology put forward, but 
we're simply here laying the groundwork of what uh, American Christianity is and then being a little critical of that right off the bat. So, um, thus far, revivalism. Now, next week, we will do a little bit more of a deep dive into pietism, mysticism, and enthusiasm. The Lord be with you.